We, um, we want to wish you all a very merry, joyous, happy, stress-free, delightful Christmas. Um, I've been asking people this week, um, what are some of the signs that Christmas is near? And here's some of the answers I've gotten from Amir, one of our elders. Uh, he told me that there's energy in the air, which I love the fact that there's more energy in the air this time of year. That's a sign of Christmas. My beloved wife, Debbie, said that you hear the Christmas songs on the radio. She loves, I mean, they're playing our songs on the radio, which is awesome. That's a sign of Christmas. And then you see Christmas trees, you know, everywhere, grocery store lots. You see them on top of carts. And that's cool. To see Christmas trees being hauled around. That's a sign of Christmas. And then the color of the coffee cups at Starbucks, they change. <laughs> they turn green and red, you know, kind of festive holiday colors. And, um, you know, uh, people, uh, this is a sign of Christmas. People get a little more aggressive on the road. Do you notice that? Uh, a little more stressed out there on the road, like kind of pushy in the parking lots, that kind of thing. Um, then you kind of drive through your neighborhood, the city you see, like the lights. Um, one of my neighbors has an inflatable Santa. That's a sign of Christmas. Well, a countdown to Christmas. Like, now we know it's Christmas because Santa's counted it down for us. And then another neighbor has Santa and Mrs. Claus there together, you know, to celebrate Christmas. And here you are on a Christmas Eve. That's a sign Christmas is really close now. So thank you all for being part of this. You know, just as there were signs now that Christmas is near, there were signs that God gave to his nation to give them hope. Um, everybody needs hope. You need hope. Um, a student who's studying, you know, needs hope that someday this class will be over. A soldier, you know, deployed far away, needs to know that someday I can come home. A cancer patient, you know, fighting against an affliction, needs hope that this procedure will work. A mom needs hope that this is all worth it. Hope is a sure confidence that brighter days are ahead, that sustains us when the skies are gray. And I hope you find this helpful. The uh, evening's text is taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. If you have a mobile device or a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. I'll be there in just a moment. God promised a sign to Israel, and this was it in Isaiah. He said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive a child, and she'll give birth to a son, and will call his name Emmanuel. And then chapter 9, Isaiah, I'll summarize. He said, despair and darkness will not go on forever. Surely you see the darkness in our culture, how much darker we've become. Even the Disney films seem to have a darkness. I saw two moms talking at the theater about how even Frozen 2 has this element of darkness in it. He says the nation is going to become humbled and a stronger, more powerful nation is about to invade and they will strip your land of its wealth and carry, away, carry you far, far away. The people and the king had made several spiritual compromises and Isaiah was speaking to them and their nation about the compromises they had made. You know, compromise happens when we begin to ignore the very words of God and choose our own path. And that path when we ignore God always leads to slavery. And God says, I love you all very much. I will fulfill my promises and deliver you from your slavery. And though your land is about to get humbled, there's a time in the future when Galilee will be filled with glory. 
I love that part of the prophecy, that this land that's going to be humbled is going to experience glory. The glory is the attributes of God. You know, when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding feast, he revealed his glory. And when the angel appeared to the shepherds, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. So what Isaiah is saying is, you and your nation are living the time of darkness, of despair, and your nation is about to get humbled. God's going to bring judgment on the nation. There's a day, though, when the Messiah will come, and he will come with glory. And the people walking in darkness will see a great light. Even in the midst of deep darkness, a light will shine. He's saying to the nation, saying to us, that there is hope on the horizon. There's coming a day when someone will come who will change everything. I know the days are dark and there's deep distress, but this person coming will be a great light. People in the darkness will see the light and that light will shine and the light will be greater than the darkness of the culture. It'll be, it will dispel the darkness. Augustine said that even the darkest, deepest night cannot extinguish the power of light. In a few moments, we're going to light a candle, which represents the light of Jesus that shines in the midst of the darkness. Now to our text, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. It says, for to us, you've heard this, haven't you, in Handel's Messiah? You've seen this on Christmas cards. For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. This is Bethlehem. This is Christmas. This is the incarnation. For to us, a child is born, speaks of his humanity. For to us, a son is given, speaks of his divinity. And the government will rest upon his shoulder, speaks of his sovereignty, his authority. 700 years before Jesus would be born, Isaiah, speaking in the prophetic perfect, would predict that indeed Jesus would be born. And the one thing that differentiates Christianity from all the other world religions is prophecy. That indeed God made predictions, and these predictions, many of them have been fulfilled, all of them will be fulfilled. For to us, a child is born, his humanity. In one sense, the birth of Jesus was just an ordinary birth. Mary carried Jesus for nine months in utero. There was a normal labor and delivery. And he came out with amniotic fluid and probably cried. An ordinary birth. You know, the, uh, the oldest woman ever to give birth was 70 years old. By the way, Pastor Lee, she's from China. 70 years old. And the longest, um, or the, the heaviest child ever born was 22 pounds. Can you imagine giving birth to that one? 22 pounds. So this baby was just a little normal baby. But in another sense, his birth was quite unusual. This child was conceived with the help of the Holy Spirit. This child was not conceived with Joseph's help. And this created quite a problem for Joseph because he knew he was not the father. And he wrestled with a huge decision. Perhaps tonight you're wrestling with a huge decision. The question was whether to divorce Mary he decided to put her away, so he had many sleepless nights. But one night, I think he slept pretty well, and an angel spoke to him and said, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
For what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, she, Mary, will have a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. So let's be very clear. Your son will be the savior. And he is being born to save people from their sins. Sin's not a very politically correct word to use. You don't hear politicians talk much about sin. But sin is true for all humanity. Someone said that sin is like a good sneeze. It feels good, but leaves behind a big mess. (laughs) Sin has left behind a huge mess. And Jesus lived his life to save people from their sins. He saved people at the top of the ladder like Nicodemus. He had a private audience with Jesus. He saved people at the bottom of the ladder, bottom of the ladder like lepers. He saved them. One day, Jesus was passing through the city of Jericho. Jericho was a very rich commercial city with much traffic. It was a good city for the Romans to levy taxes. So they had tax collectors, which were considered traitors to Rome. The tax collectors had a quota. Once they got their quota, they could keep the rest and put it in their pockets. They were hated and despised. And the only thing worse than a tax collector was a chief of the tax collectors. And the chief tax collector, his name was Zacchaeus. And Jesus was passing through his city one day. And Zacchaeus wanted to see him. Wouldn't you want to see Jesus if he was passing through your city? So they lined up on the streets to see Jesus passing through. And Zacchaeus was a short man. And he couldn't quite see over the crowd. So he climbed up in a sycamore tree, a sprawling tree, to see Jesus. Question is, why did he climb the tree? One sister, her brother, climbed the tree, just a little guy, and um, she went up to get him. And her mother said, why did you get him? She said, I didn't want him to be a tree boy. Well, Zacchaeus was up a tree. And the question is, why would Zacchaeus have... Climb this tree to see Jesus. Well, Jesus had demonstrated that he loved all people. He loved tax collectors. He had one tax collector named Matthew who had been saved by Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. And and Matthew left behind his tax collecting booth and followed Jesus. Maybe Jesus could save Zacchaeus. Maybe he could save me. So when he came to the tree, he said, Zacchaeus, as if they were friends, you know, Jesus wants to be your very best friend. And on this, in this city, he was headed toward Jerusalem where he's going to lay down his life. But he put high value on the life of Zacchaeus. You see, all the hatred could not change him of Zacchaeus. But the love of Jesus could powerfully change him. He said, come down, Zacchaeus. I want to be a guest at your house today. This is the only time we know of Jesus inviting himself over for dinner. And so they spent a couple hours together there at the house. Everybody was sitting in judgment of Jesus saying, he's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. But Zacchaeus climbed down from the tree. He was filled with excitement and joy. And in the presence of Jesus, this is what happens. Zacchaeus was changed. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house today. Can you imagine that pronouncement over your house? That salvation has come to this house 
today that somebody got saved. You know, the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. I mean, the angels are kind of like high-fiving one another. It's just time to celebrate that somebody got saved. And then Luke says these words, For the Son of Man came to seek and save after the lost. If you're lost, Jesus is seeking after you. For to us, a child has been born. For to us, a son is given. If being born of a virgin speaks to his humanity, his identification with us, then being a son that is given speaks to his divinity. As a human, he could get sleepy. Jesus, in his humanity, after teaching all day, laid down in the back of a boat, and guess what he did? He took a nap. While the waves were roaring, Jesus was snoring. Now, I understand about this humanity because I have a grandson whose name was William. William, and he's five years old. And William does not like to take naps. So Pop, and that's me, job was to take William to his room and entice him to take a nap. So I decided that I would read him a story about the big bad wolf and the three little pigs. And I felt as I was telling this story, my eyes were getting heavy. And at some point I lost consciousness in the story. <laughs> and William came back to his mother and his father and they said, William, what are you doing here? He said, the big bad wolf's asleep in my bed. You see, Jesus in his humanity could take a nap. But in his divinity, when he was awakened from his nap, he said, peace and be still. And the ferocious storm became strangely calm. You know that he can quiet your inner self in the midst of a storm outside? And then Jesus in his humanity knew something about weariness. In his humanity, after hiking all day, he sat down beside a well to wait for a Samaritan woman. You know, Jesus will wait for you. He waited for this Samaritan woman. Not only was he weary, but he was thirsty. He had asked her to give him a drink. But Jesus, in his divinity, knew everything about her, knew all her story, just like he knows all of our story. Nothing was hidden from him. He said, hey, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. There was a longing unfulfilled in her heart. Jesus is the babe born in Bethlehem, but his existence did not begin in Bethlehem. The fact that he's the son that is given by the grace of God suggests his pre-existence. We know from scripture that before Abraham was, he said, I am. And then he says that the government will rest upon his shoulder. Now this is the part that has not been fulfilled. The government will rest upon his shoulder. Isaiah is peering into the future. He's looking way beyond Bethlehem, way beyond the cross. He's seeing a future kingdom. He's seeing a reigning monarch. You see, in ancient times, government was spoken of as a burden. Now, I think what happens now is that government puts the burden on people. But then government was considered a burden of the king. Kierkegaard would speak of a king who once in a while would leave his royal throne, his palace, and he would dress in the clothes of a peasant. He would work as a common laborer and eat the food of the poor. Now, of course, his advisors would advise him this was a security risk. But the king would say to his advisors, 
How can I rule my people if I don't know how they live? Think of Jesus wearing the clothes of a peasant. Jesus was not born into wealth, though he was wealth, wealthy. He was born into poverty. You'd think a king would have dignitaries there at his birthplace, but instead there's sheep and donkeys. He's laid on hay. What do you think about our current government? What do you think about our Congress? What do you think about our president? Is our government a comedy or is our government a tragedy? Our government and our nation, as you know, is deeply divided. There is division. The rhetoric has become more vicious and more hateful. On one side, you have the Democrats. On one side, you have the Republicans. The Democrats want to impeach the president. The Republicans can't wait for the trial. While the big issues of our land, like immigration, education, infrastructure, go unaddressed. I wonder if there's any politician whose house is in enough order that they're prepared to be able to throw stones at someone else. But there's coming a day, there is coming a day, when there won't be a divide. There's coming a day when there won't be Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other. Because our king will take the throne. And he will rule this world with righteousness and justice. And the wrongs will be made right. <laughs> you see, he won't be serving for a four-year term or an eight-year term. He's going to be serving forever. And he will be the uncontested ruler, and no one will question his authority. You see, outside the United Nations in New York City is the description that I think you'll recognize, that someday we will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they make war anymore. That is our hope when Jesus Christ is ruling on the throne and the government rests upon him. Can you imagine, can you imagine a world without war? Can you imagine a world where there is peace? Can you imagine where there's no human, homeland security, where there's no hierarchy of threats upon the nation? The Jewish people hoped that their king would come and their king would establish his kingdom, set up his kingdom. That's what the prophets predicted. And Isaiah is speaking to that. I'm talking about the biggest event ever to happen in the history of the world, the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming is the culmination of all of history for all of time. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer that has not been answered yet. It's the kingdom yet to come. When all that is broken will be made whole and all that is damaged will be restored and the light will finally shine on all that is dark. The message of the Bible is the king is coming with a kingdom. Now our forefathers fought the Revolutionary War against the king of England and his armies, believing there was tyranny. And the cry of the American Revolution was, we will only have King Jesus to be our king. He, he alone will have absolute authority and dominion and control. 
So what are the titles that will be given to our king when he reigns from chapter 9, verse 6 of Isaiah? The first title is he will be called a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor. Now there's times in our life when we all need counsel, don't we? We're being sued. We need legal counsel. We have a medical issue. We need a medical consult. We have a marriage or family issue. We need counsel. <clears throat> but not all the counsel, not all, the, not all that we receive is wonderful. Anyone can give you their opinion on what to do. And there's an old proverb that says, he who builds according to every man's advice will live in a very crooked house. But Jesus, his counsel is wonderful. We will marvel and wonder at the counsel, the wisdom of God, because Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Have you built your life upon the counsel that Jesus Christ gives? He was a wonderful counselor at his birth. It says when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. He was wonderful at his birth. He was wonderful in his life. That's why the crowds flocked to hear him. Nicodemus asked for a private audience. They were amazed at his gracious words that flowed from his lips. One of the guards was sent to arrest him and said, came back with empty hands. He said, never before did a man speak like Jesus. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard one of Jesus' sermons? Hear his words from his lips. And he was wonderful in his death. He said from the cross, his very first words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he said, it is finished. The work I've come to do is now complete. Jesus is a very wonderful counselor. The second title was given was the mighty God. The God with strength and power and might. The mighty God, the warrior God, the God who fights for us, the almighty the God who will crush all of his enemies, the God who wins the battle, the God who takes the throne. Nobody has ever won a battle with God. When Satan took on God, he was crushed. And the final battle will be not much of a battle, will be called Armageddon. Jesus will ride out in a white horse, a war horse, and he will crush all the enemies that are arrayed against him. Pharaoh thought he could stand against God, but he was crushed. And the third title is the Messiah is the everlasting father, the everlasting father. Now, this could be a little bit confusing since we think of the heavenly father as our father. How can the Messiah be an everlasting father <coughs> and our father still be our father? The answer is Jesus taught us that I and the Father are one. They are of the same na nature, the same essence. Both the Father and Jesus are both tender and compassionate. And what I believe Isaiah is saying is, through all eternity, we'll experience the Father-like compassion and tender love of God. But there's one more, and I want to just spend a moment with it. The fourth title of Messiah is that of the Prince of Peace. Of all things that characterize the kingdom, the greatest of them will be the peace. Do you remember the first time the, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem? 
What did he ride on? He rode on a donkey. Kings rode on donkeys because they were offering terms of peace. The second time Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it won't be on a donkey. It will be on a war horse. Why is he coming? He's coming to establish worldwide peace. You see, the angels sang at his birth, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, to whom God's favor rests. So you ask the question, where is this peace in the world? Peace seems to have eluded us. Violence, however, characterizes our world. Of recorded history, 5,000 years, there's only been a few years of peace. So who experiences the peace of God? People on whom God's favor rests. People with whom God is well pleased. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The word in the Hebrew used for peace is the word shalom. It is both a proclamation and an invitation. The proclamation is that by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who died in our stead, who took our place on a cross, who became our substitute, who satisfied God's justice so that God could be both just and the justifier of them who put their faith in him, we have peace with God. The shalom of God, which God wants for you, is his wellness, your wholeness, and completeness. A stone spoken of being shalom was not a broken stone, but a stone that's made whole. A wall spoken of being shalom is not a wall with a gap, it's a whole wall. A body that is shalom is not out of alignment, it is whole. So we enter into this peace of God by faith. We can have the peace of God on the inside even though there is chaos in our world, in our lives, on the outside. And you see, there's things that we want to buy that we think will bring us peace. We think that buying a new car will bring us peace. But we'll probably worry about that car being dinked and scratched. We think that buying a new house will bring us peace. But I can just testify, since our roof collapsed, that the house won't bring you all that peace. You see, peace is something that God gives to us. That no matter what the political situation is, we can have peace. And no matter what the condition of your marriage is, the situation is, you can have peace on the inside. And no matter what your financial situation is, you can have peace. And no matter how old you are, you can have peace. No matter how young you are, you can have peace. Peace is not the absence of conflicts on the outside. Peace is the presence of Christ on the inside. He is our peace. And once we have this peace with God, we can have the peace of God that passes all understanding. And that happens when we have a problem. One of our options is we can stress out about the problem. Another option is we can pray. Paul said, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And the peace of God will garrison, will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. Tonight, you can release whatever you're holding into the hands of God 
to lay at the feet of Jesus, who is our king, that problem. And you can experience peace, perhaps like you've never known. That's why peace is both a proclamation. I want to proclaim peace over you. But peace is also an invitation. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as this world gives. Peace is a gift. Would you like some of this peace? Please say yes. (laughs) I've worked hard to come to this point. (laughs) Would you like to be forgiven? Would you like to draw near to God? Take your hands like this, would you? Just close your eyes with me. God, there's problems in our life. There's marriage problems. There's financial problems. There's health issues. Somebody in our families not doing that great. One of our kids we're worried about gives us a lot of stress. Father, into your hands we release this problem. We no longer want to hold on to it, Lord. We want to let go of it. There's perhaps a person we need to forgive. We've been holding a grudge, maybe creating distance. God, we put this person in your hands. And now would you reverse your hands and open them up? Father, from you, we receive your peace. What a gift you want to give to us, Lord, your peace. A peace with you, a peace of you, a peace of God. You want your people to experience the fullness, riches of peace. So I proclaim peace over them, the peace of Christ. Would you fill them, Lord, with the fullest measure? Could they be a peacemaker within their own families? Could they bring an atmosphere of peace into their households? Could they bring peace to their children? Oh, Lord, with all the chaos that's in our world, we receive this peace because, God, you are our light and you are our king. And we pray together in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen.